uh, I just ask you to pray with me uh, before we look at God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for uh, the privilege of uh, learning from your word together. I ask that you help me to speak clearly and well, help us all to um, think clearly and uh, uh, learn uh, what it is you have to teach us today. Amen. Our passage today uh, is talking about teachers. One of the best-known movies about teachers and teaching is probably Dead Poet Society. Uh, put up your hand if you like Dead Poet Society. Yeah, cool, good. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's set in, ex- in an exclusive American boys' school. Uh, the main character is an English teacher called Mr. Keating. And the story focuses on his relationship with a group of students. Keating has some unconventional ideas and he really comes into conflict with the establishment. He clashes with the principal and the other teachers who really only care about upholding the strict uh, standards and traditions of the school. Through his wit and intelligence, Keating meets the teachers and students head on. He challenges those teachers who don't care about the students and he inspires his students to follow him. He wins the title of respect, O Captain, My Captain. He inspires the boys to think for themselves and make something of their lives. He inspires them to carpe diem, seize the day. This leads the boys uh, to form the group called the Dead Poet Society. Through a disastrous series of events, one of the students commits suicide. The principal and the parents get together to blame Keating and he's eventually fired. Uh, but the movie ends with this rousing climax. As Keating leaves his classroom for the last time, the boys stand up on their desks and call out, Oh, Captain, my Captain. The principal's demands to get down fall on deaf ears. The boys know that Keating is the only teacher worth following. Our passage for today talks about a teacher who inspires you to follow him. A teacher who we will find is the only teacher to follow. The passage falls within a specific section in Mark, a section that describes Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem just before his arrest. Uh, It's a time where he comes into strong conflict with the religious leaders. As he he rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, the crowds praise him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He infuriates the religious leaders by clearing the temple. He says they've turned it into a den of robbers. They're so mad they start looking for a way to kill him. And then last week we read the parable of the wicked tenants. Jesus speaks directly against the religious leaders against their lust for power and their rejection of God's authority. Again, they they start looking for a way to arrest him. So the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is escalating. In our passage today, we see a series of challenges to Jesus. Jesus is approached by uh, three different groups, three groups who represent the religious authorities of the day. Uh, First, the Pharisees, then the Sadducees, and, and third, the teachers of the law. These religious leaders come to him with a series of questions. They're trying to catch him out. They're trying to shame him in front of the people. And we see Jesus engage with them in a battle of wits. In the end, the people are left to decide, who should we follow? Who is the teacher worth following? So the first group to come to Jesus are the the Pharisees and Herodians. Uh, Notice that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, have started to conspire with the secular authorities, uh, the Herodians. And their goal is simple. They want to catch Jesus in his speech. 
and get him to say something that the crowd won't like. Their method is quite devious. They start by buttering him up. They sprout a whole lot of false praise, but their question, when they finally ask it, reveals their agenda. Uh, Their technique kind of reminds me of the technique used by car salesmen. You look like a smart guy, they say. Uh, You know what you want. No one's going to fool you. Doesn't this look like a great deal? Now, you want to say yes, but you've got to think before you answer because the more they get you to agree with them, the closer they are to selling you a dud or making you spend more than you can afford. It's a cleverly devised trap. And the Pharisees do something similar with Jesus. Let's read it and see how they phrase their question. Read with me from verse 13. Verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? There's the clincher. To pay or not to pay, that is their question. But Jesus isn't fooled by their technique. He knows what hypocrites they are. He knows they're setting a trap. If he says, yes, they should pay taxes to Caesar, he keeps the Herodians happy, but the crowd will turn against him because they're not too fond of their Roman masters. But if he says no, apparently siding with the religious leaders, he's immediately in trouble with the Roman authorities. So Jesus answers their question, but he answers in a way that exposes their plan to trap him. He answers in a way that honours both human authorities and God. And his answer is so simple yet so profound that it leaves them amazed. Let's read his answer uh, from verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. You see, underneath the Pharisees' question is a resentment about having to pay taxes to the Roman authorities. Yet here they are carrying carrying around a denarius, the, the, the very benefits of that authority. Jesus says, like it or not, you are under the rule of a human authority. And whether you agree with them or not, you're bound to obey them. They control earthly things like money, and you have to pay them what they require of you, uh, especially if you're going to enjoy the benefits they bring. Uh, But this doesn't discount God's authority. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Uh, Just what this means is spelled out a little bit later. But for now, the Pharisees and Herodians are left amazed. The second group that come to question Jesus are the Sadducees. Immediately we learn that these guys don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe the Old Testament teaches a resurrection after death. And they put a question to Jesus to try to disprove the resurrection. These guys are experts in the law of Moses. They get their question from Moses' teaching in the book of Deuteronomy. They put to Jesus this unreal, almost comical situation. It sounds a bit like a weird algebra question from year 10 maths, where at the end... The question seems almost unrelated to the data. You know. Let's just read their question together from verse 18. 
Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Now the Sadducees are saying that if if Moses' law is right, then there can't be a resurrection. If if it was, if there was a resurrection, it would make lawbreakers out of the seven brothers. Because in the resurrection, they'd all be married to their brother's wife. You might remember that this is the sin that John the Baptist challenges Herod about, and it got him thrown into prison. But Jesus' response cuts their argument off at the feet. He flatly replies, You guys are wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Jesus takes them on on their own turf. He uses a passage from Exodus where God is speaking to Moses about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now you need to realise that these guys have been dead for hundreds of years at the time that God is uh, speaking to Moses here. But even hundreds of years after they're dead, God still says to him, I am their God. He says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not I was, I am. There is life after death. Read from verse 24 with me, verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. There's no response recorded from the Sadducees. Jesus has taken them on on their own turf and won. Now thirdly, we come to a a slightly different interaction. The next question comes from one of the teachers of the law. And this guy has recognised that Jesus is a good teacher. He's noticed Jesus cutting down his opponent's arguments and he asks a serious question. He doesn't seem to have a hidden agenda. He genuinely wants to know what Jesus thinks. And the question he asks is a pearler. Let's read it together uh, from verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Remember Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees and the Herodians? Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And here, Jesus fleshes out what it is we give to God. If the denarius carries the image of Caesar, then it's clear what you're to give to Caesar. But people are made in the image of God. So to God, our heavenly master, surely we owe everything. 
And, and the teacher's response to Jesus here, it seems a little arrogant at first. It sounds a bit like someone congratulating Plato for knowing a thing or two about philosophy. But you've got to give him his due. At least he's agreeing with Jesus. And Jesus acknowledges the teacher's wisdom. Let's read the rest of their interaction from verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You were right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So Jesus' response to this teacher of the law is is enough to shut everyone up. He's shown himself to be a teacher worth his salt. He's more than a match for them all, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law. And now it's Jesus' turn to teach. He's defeated his competitors. Now he has the floor and everyone else can listen. Jesus brings up a saying from scripture and it shows how the teachers of the law have misunderstood it. He shows how their vision of the Christ is too small. They've understood that the Christ is physically a descendant of David, but they haven't understood that he's also far greater than David. He's far greater because David refers to the Christ as my Lord. Let's read the next bit together and also notice the crowd's response to Jesus' words from verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. It didn't make any sense in that culture to refer to a son as the Lord of his father. But here in this quote from Psalm 110, David calls the Christ, my Lord. So who is the Christ? Well, he must be even greater than King David. Great King David's greater son. Finally, Jesus puts the teachers of the law in their place. He's soundly defeated them in debate. He's shown himself to be a far superior teacher. And now he shows them up for what they really are. For all their pomp and ceremony, they're nothing but thieves and show-offs. And he warns the crowd, he says, you don't want to end up like these guys, much less listen to their teaching. Let's read the final section together from verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus' final words regarding the teachers of the law are harsh. They're a powerful indictment against them, and they leave us in no doubt as to who the people should follow. And as we come to think about what this passage means for us, I want to focus on three main things. First of all, Jesus is the only teacher to follow. He's a teacher who is no mere human. He's not simply a human descendant of a human king. 
Jesus is the Lord of the great King David. He is the Christ, seated at the right hand of God with his enemies as a footstool under his feet. Jesus is the greatest teacher. There's no teacher worthy to be followed except for him. He is the one who inspires us to follow him. Uh, Like Mr Keating in Dead Poets Society, uh, only infinitely greater and more inspiring. And this great inspiring teacher has given us some very timely teaching in this passage, teaching that we ought to obey. So secondly, let's think about Jesus' first encounter. What he says to the Pharisees and the Herodians I think is particularly relevant uh, to us at this time of year. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, Like the Jews of Jesus' day, I think it's very popular in Australian culture to bag our human leaders. It's almost a national sport to complain about those in authority. And like the Jews, our discontent with when it uh, often shows itself when it comes to paying taxes. We resent giving our hard-earned money to a government that doesn't know how to use it. So we find ways around paying taxes. Uh, we look for loopholes that let us get away with paying as little as possible. This kind of seems like the Australian way. Uh, and I wonder if you're tempted to join in. Come tax time, do you, do you look for those little ways to fudge the figures? Are you tempted not to declare parts of your income, even though you're meant to? I hope you don't do those things, but if you do, you've got the wrong attitude to human authorities. It's not the way Jesus wants us to think about them. He said we should give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, in Jesus' time, uh, this was a dangerous thing to teach, especially to a people who thought you were there to liberate them. The Roman Empire was an oppressive regime, and the Jewish nation submitted to them under duress. But in modern-day Australia, a teaching like this is perfectly reasonable. When it comes to submitting to authority, I'd rather live in Australia than just about anywhere else in the world. We get to elect those who govern us, and in return we get benefits that most people around the world don't even come close to. We have freedom of religion, free education and health care, Uh, welfare for the needy, free police, fire and ambulance services, and all this from a government government that is highly accountable to the people they serve. Like the Pharisees, we enjoy all these benefits, yet we still criticise the government and try to withhold from them what's their due. This is not the attitude Jesus wants us to have. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And secondly... Uh, My third point, Jesus has something to say about submitting to God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Remember Jesus' debate with the Sadducees. He showed them that God's claim on our lives goes beyond the grave. As Christians, we face the prospect of resurrection to eternal life. And this great hope is reflected in our service of God here and now. As he answers the teacher's question in the third interaction... Jesus shows us what it should look like when we give to God what is God's. What is the greatest commandment, the scribe asks? Jesus says the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. If we owe allegiance to our human authorities, how much more do we owe allegiance to God? How much more should we submit to the one who has eternal authority? Human authorities may have a claim over things like our money, but as people who are made in the image of God, 
God claim, God's claim is over our entire lives. Everything we are, our heart, soul, mind and strength belongs to God. And as you, as you give to God what is God's, this should be seen in all areas of your life. Uh, it should be seen in the way you conduct yourself at home with your family, in the kind of person you are when you're at work with your friends, in the thoughts that you allow to occupy your mind, in what you do when you're alone, the things no one else sees. It should be seen in the way you love your neighbour as yourself. I don't know if you find that a bit of a hard pill to swallow, but I certainly do. I'm not sure I've ever loved anyone as much as I love myself. If you're anything like me, you're inherently selfish. It's just not natural for human beings to love another person as much as they love themselves. But this is just part of what it means to love God. And we can't always look to our human leaders to show us how to do this. Jesus' three debates with the religious leaders show that they were not obeying this greatest commandment. They loved themselves far more than they loved God or their neighbour. Remember, they were the ones who liked to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets, and who devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Teachers like this are not worthy to be followed. None of them can love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength, let alone show us how to do it. But praise God, we do have a teacher worth following. Jesus has shown himself to be greater than all other teachers. He is the Christ, great King David's greater son. He is the one who showed us what it means to love God. And the one who died for us rose back to life and now sits at God's right hand with his enemies as a footstool under his feet. He is the only teacher who truly inspires us to follow him. Jesus truly is the only teacher to follow. I wonder if you'd pray with me now and thank God for giving us a teacher like Jesus. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us such a great teacher to follow in your son Jesus. Please help us to follow his teaching and his example. As we, do, uh, as we do this, we uh, pray that we would uh, learn more and more about what it means uh, to love our neighbour and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Amen.